The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. I will take a C student any day of the week. They'll put the needs of their client over themselves than the A student who's more worried about their vacation time. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. I kind of rolled back some memories. I know today we're known as um, this top-notch firm, and Grable's always been known as a top-notch firm, but before things took off, the story was a little different. And all I could do right now is equate this to like playing in the minor leagues when I started Creme Law. What we used to do, we're not going to name names. No names will be named. You guys hear that? No names. <clears throat> what I used to do, we would travel to courts all across the state. When I started <clears throat> with, when I started with Grable and Associates, Scott would send me everywhere. I thought it's just what people did. Eventually, local lawyers get really pissed off. He kept showing up. And this was amazing. I learned all these different courts, right? It was really cool. Travel three hours from home and learn about all these different courts and and uh, what I decided to do as a way to save money, which by the way it blew up in my face. So me and these other lawyers <clears throat> would travel over the place. We decided to get a different court appointed list back then, and um, we decided to just make a road trip out of this. One day I would drive, one day this lawyer would drive, one day the other lawyer would drive, and we would try to like. You know, we're in this county, the next county, the next county. Let's bag out all these cases together. And I was pretty excited about that. <clears throat> the problem is when you get talking to people on like three, four hour trips, you start to learn that you might be the normal one in the room. And I want to share some of the stories from when I was driving the Saturn View with the CD player and how one day. One of the guys had Spotify and things changed, and that was like cutting edge. But let's start with this. There's three of us, right? We're going out to Tawas. <laughs> Tawas was about three hours and 15 minutes away. And one of my agendas on these trips was to get the cheapest possible hotel you could. However, I was always a good tipper. And Matt would say things to me like, how did you spend $18 on the room, but $25 on the meal? And you gotta keep in mind now, I was getting really hungry at this point. When I say hungry, I was looking for cases everywhere. Things were out of control. So, when you're driving long distances with people, things get weird, right? You start letting your guard down. They let their guard down. And the one guy had Spotify before we all had Spotify, right? I mean, I live by Spotify, or the Spotify version of it. I was like, holy because what I used to do was put YouTube on my phone, plug it into the car, or I had my CD player. Now, this guy has a Spotify thing, 
and he tells me you can listen to any song you want. I'm like, oh my god! So we're playing all this music, trying up the Tawas in the snow. And I start, this is my fault. I had these two lawyers in the car. Very weird guys. We're not friends today. But I was the one, I was friends with them back then, so let's do this whole tour of Michigan thing. And back then I was kind of like their leader and we were all good to go, but there's this one song that's playing. I can laugh and I'm chuckling. They go, what's up? I said, oh, well, this song reminds me of this ex-girlfriend. So every song that came up reminded me of an ex-girlfriend or a situation in Jersey. And I thought it was funny. So listen to these stories. Well, here's Champagne High. Let me tell you about that. Here's everything you want. Let me tell you about that. So every song, I'm telling like this five-minute story. Now, one of the things these guys would do when I was driving is they were drinking the bag. As they were drinking this really cheap liquor, remember, we weren't making shit back then. They let their guard down. And they would start telling stories. So... This one guy goes, can I play a song and tell you a story? Yeah, please, go ahead. Let, I, I want to hear what you got to say. Let me shut up. So he says, I'm going to play a song about this girl I love. And he starts crying. Like, oh, this is what's this, why is this guy crying? He's like, oh, she meant so much to me and this song's so meaningful. And I'm like, okay, um, what's the song? So he goes, do you know the band Phoenix TX? I'm like, oh yeah, sure, I know Phoenix TX. I know what song you're going to play. You're going to play KDW. He goes, no, 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 that's a good song. That's not the song. That was not our song. Okay. So the other guy says, you're going to play All My Fault. Because, And that's a good song, but it's kind of poppy, right? It's like, no, you guys are missing the point. Now keep in mind, here's this guy... Sucking on his $6 bottle of whiskey. Drunk as hell. Crying about this ex-girlfriend. So I said, what song from Phoenix TX are you going to play? And he says, Threesome. What? Now, Threesome is a good song. But I never viewed it as a romantic song. I was telling these tales of crazy stories. And he's telling me Threesome. So then he's really drunk. And he starts telling me why Threesome is the song he's thinking of with his ex-girlfriend. You can do the math. But it was pretty... Like, why? Uh, that same guy... He was on the prowl, right? He wanted to find different girls. He had this idea, like, out of county, that women were beautiful and this and that. So one day, we're um, doing quarter point at work. And there's a mental health court program. And there's this woman in there. Very pretty woman. But she is in the mental health court. <laughs> Let's start with that. I'm a big proponent of the mental health court. Any mental health court's important. But you have to be careful. You shouldn't date clients to begin with, but certainly not ones that are in the mental health court. There's a lot of red flags with her. So he starts rearranging his schedule around the mental health court schedule, and they end up together. That relationship did not work out. Right. Another weird thing that happened was, and again, remember, we weren't making much money back then, but I always tipped well. 
I was always tipping well because I bartended. So what I would do is wherever we went to a hotel, no matter what hotel we went to, I would always leave $5 for housekeeping. It's just the right thing to do, right? Housekeepers got to make their tips. So one day, me and this one guy are in a room together. I leave the $5. I go shave. I come out. And there's three ones in the five. Is gone. He stole the housekeeper's tip. And he left three ones to pocket two bucks. And, you know, this is a weird situation. Like, do you call the guy out on this? It's like, wait. Did you steal the housekeeper's tip? He's like, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I left the five. When we left, I only saw three ones there. And he just changed the subject. One of the things you would do on these long trips, too, is you got, you'd find ways to save money, right? So you're going to split things up. Remember one day, I'm with these two lawyers. And I can't stress enough, this was like the minor leagues, right? <laughs> We're traveling all over the place for dog sh** money. I tell the one guy, hey, I'll pay for gas. You buy lunch. And lunch would consist of a sandwich and a Gatorade at the gas station. So I fill up the gas tank. We're driving to our next court. Whatever. And I'm like, hey, I'm really I'm getting a little hungry now. What'd you get? Because, oh, it's in the bag. Okay. In the bag was like this one thing of like jerky strips a thing of tic tac and a gatorade bottle that he drank half out of there's very few things you want to hear in life when you're driving one of them is one of them you don't want to hear is hey we're getting pulled over the second thing is hold this ow as you know, I never smoked weed in my life. And it's also very clear that many lawyers have substance abuse issues. One day we're driving down the highway. And we are stopped by the Michigan State Police. And the driver is freaking out. He throws this thing. He goes, hold it. I don't know what it is. And I'm sitting here like, dude, I'm not holding your drugs. Cop comes up. Cop knew me. Didn't know the other two. So the cop's like, well, I mean, I know Bill's not using drugs. Oh, man. You know, back during the poor part of criminal, we used to, like, put two, three guys in a room or whatever to save money. And I had a bad snoring problem back then. Before the CPAP and getting in the gym and all that, I mean, I was out of shape and I'm snoring real bad. And I go to bed early. You know, we had, like, two beds and a little couch in this one, like, red roof in. And, you know, we're all, you know, watching a game. I'm going to crash. Those guys are doing their thing. We got court 8 o'clock in the morning. 5 o'clock in the morning, there's this woman standing by the bed right and she's pushing me and I'm like what the hell and she screams you're snoring too loud shut up I'm like what the hell is this and the guy I was rooming with says oh that's Rosa I met her at the bar 
Oh, man. One time I went to stop at a casino. <laughs> I was all excited, right, about this casino. You know, and you think these lawyers, you're bonding with them. And this one lawyer, he was like fighting guests, right? He's screaming at the guest. He's pissed off. He's drunk. He's going to kick the shit out of this poor guest. I'm thinking of that character witness issues coming up. But we're in an area where there's a casino. And I want to see this casino, man. I want to go play poker. I'm burned out. We're starting to make a little money at this point. And he says, no, we're not going to the casino. We can't run a mission. He was driving that day. So he drives like all like 40 miles out of the way. And I says, what are we doing? Because we're going to see the world's largest ball of yarn. At this point in the game, I start realizing to myself, holy shit. Here was the problem with Krim Law, guys. 2017, I didn't have for money, right? And by like 2018 and a half, we're making big money, but I don't realize it. I just keep, I'm taking cases everywhere and I'm just throwing the checks in. I'm not thinking about anything. Well, me and these guys start drifting apart because I'm getting these bigger cases. They're getting pissed off. I mean, listen, when we went on these trips, my goal was to learn every single court, to learn all these courts, have this vast amount of experience, kick ass in all these courts, make a name for myself. I just said, hey, let's strive together. It was a cost-saving endeavor. For some of them, it was a Thelma and Louise moment. You know, this was their chance to get out of the house, make a little money. And I'm sad to say we're not friends today. We're in different circles. They're both lawyers somewhere else, and I wish them well. And if they're watching this, hey, no hard feelings, man. There's a lot of weird shit. But I gotta tell you, on those road trips, you taught me that I was the normal one. And that is concerning. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. They were going down memory lane. And I was talking to someone early this morning. My day started really early. And Scott Zolber's name came up. You know, for those of you that know Scott, may he rest in peace. He was such an amazing person. Died way too young. And that's why the first topic will be about the season opener with the Eagles in 2018. We'll break that down. Then we'll talk about the Innocence Project, my first term there, which set the tone for a lot of crim law. Um, there'll be some Norman Fell discussion, some Joey Andrews discussion. We'll get into those individuals. And lastly, we'll talk about December 30th, 1994. I'm an 18-year-old kid who's a bar porter at Tropicana. And that was a day that really motivated the hell out of me for a lot of things. It set the tone for a lot of things. It taught me a lot about relationships. It taught me a lot about fight, you know. You had so much fight growing up in Ducktown, but that day was like a splash of cold water, like maybe even hot coffee in the face. We'll get into that. All right, let's start with opening day. Season opener, 2018. Scott Grable gets me tickets. And the Eagles had just won the Super Bowl. And the Eagles winning the Super Bowl... It was something we thought would never happen. 
you know, we, there were so many great teams in Philadelphia, and we finally overcame, we got over the hump. And Nick Foles, for three games in the 2017 playoffs, was the greatest quarterback to ever walk on the field. He led us to an amazing Super Bowl run, and we got the ring. We are now Super Bowl champions. And what an amazing feeling it was. And I remember talking to Scott Zolber, one of my best friends. And we're laughing on the phone. And one of our last emails was, I can't believe we got the ring. And uh, Scotty, he was taking from us way too early. But Scott Grable, who's been a mentor, he wanted to go to the opening game, the kickoff, 2018. So Grable gets us tickets, and we go. And I booked a hotel, and I took time off from work. And, you know, criminal law was starting to really take off at this point. Um, it's hard to believe I've only been doing criminal law for about five years, but at this point I was starting to rise a little bit. And kind of like a bonus, Scott Grable, so let's go to the link for opening day. And it was such an important opening day, because like I said, the Eagles just won the Super Bowl. They were putting the banner down that day. It was a once-a-lifetime thing. And I stayed at a hotel in Philly, and we go to this game. And to me, it was surreal in a couple reasons. We had premier seats, right? really expensive seats and as a kid being poor in Atlantic City one of the things I used to do is yes it is a crock on the t-shirt one of the things I used to do is scrape up money go across the street to the Atlantic City bus station get on a New Jersey transit and go get 700 level tickets at the vet now for those of you guys, but my allergies are kicking up today, I'm sorry about that. For those of you that grew up in the Philadelphia area, the 700 level at Veterans Stadium was a badge of honor. When you went up there, it was an educational experience like any other. Usually poor and drunk people were up there who were diehard Eagle fans and Philly fans. And this was all we could afford back then. They used to, one of the things, we used to save up money from my job as a rectory sitter and go up and take this bus to the veteran stadium. And then you'd go take the bus home. It was always dangerous coming home. And it was weird. You know, you thought to yourself, here I am now at this premier stadium. The link is amazing. And I'm going with this big time lawyer and I'm becoming a big time lawyer. And here we are at the link with premier seats in the same location where I used to scrape up money to take New Jersey Transit to watch my Eagles play. And that was so surreal. It was a reminder of how far you had come. Of course, these last four years would be um, an indicator of how far we're going. So now, one of the things I did when Scott Grable got me the ticket was I asked him for an extra ticket. And I paid for a ticket for Scott Zolber. 
We ordered our tickets before Scotty Z died. And it was going to be one of the few times Scott and I had seen each other in recent years. And I remember, like, sitting next to me was an empty seat for Scott Zolber. Scott Zolber should have been at that game with me. It's so weird when people get taken from us too young. I cannot express how much admiration I have for Scott Zolber. He was a Margate guy. And, you know, it's well documented, my feelings towards most Margate people. Scott Zolber was an exception to the rule. When I was poor in Ducktown, Scott Zolber used to pick me up so we could go to ball games together. We used to go to batting cages. Um, you know, and it was... You know, when I learned of his death, and Amber, this will hit the Michigan life... When I got the call about Scott's death, I was in trial prep. And I'm kind of becoming this big deal in Michigan. And Andrew Frito called me. And he goes, we need to talk. And I said, Drew, and Andrew's a close friend of mine. Um, you know, he says, we need to talk. And I'm like, hey, I'm in trial prep. I can't talk right now. You know, we become so focused on our careers. And... It was like, here's your friend calling you, and your career's more important than talking to your friend, and I'll get to my friend. And he says, B, we need to talk now. And he says to me, Zolber died. Now, for some reason, when I'm processing this, I think he means it's Scott's mother who died. And Scott's mother never liked me. Um, I was the poor kid from Atlantic City. They had some wealth from Margate. She didn't think I was good enough to hang with Scott. And she wasn't a big fan of mine, but because Scott's such a close friend, because he came to my mom's funeral, came to my aunt's funeral, he's been such a close friend, I'm going to fly in for Scott's mother's funeral. I'm going to send flowers. I owed it to Scott's over. And I said, I'm sorry Mrs. Zolber died. I will call Scott tonight. I will do everything right. I will be there for my friend. And Drew says to me, B, listen to me. Scott Zolber died. What? And it was like somebody ripped your soul out. How did Scott Zolber die? On May 16th, 2018, we had got our tickets the first week of March. I'm sorry, died March 16th, 2018, and the Eagle Falcon tickets we got the first week of March. And we're talking about going to this game together and hanging out, and he's gone. Dies on his birthday. And I felt empty. And what I've done to deal with grief in my life, whether it be mom's death, or Aunt Mare's death, or a close animal's death, um, after the Bobby Reyes case, Eric Coleman's death, go on and on. Dealt with a lot of death in my life. I just throw myself into work. And Scotty's gone. You have to swallow that. And at this game, I'm sitting here, 
there's an empty seat to my left, and that's Zolber's seat. And I felt like he was there when the Eagles won 18 to 12. And I bet the Eagles and the under, <laughs> and I won both ends of that bet, and it was pretty cool. And I can't thank Scott Grable enough for forcing me to take this opportunity. Grable's like, listen, you work hard, anybody I know. You need to go to this game. How many times in your life are they going to show the Super Bowl banner of the Eagles coming down? And we're at this game, and my worlds are colliding. The poor kid from the hood is now in these premier seats. My close friend is not there, but in some ways I felt he was. We're watching the Super Bowl banner come down, and Scott should have been there um, in person. He really should have. And it's just a memory that will stick with you forever. I remember, you know, I'm checking in at the link on Facebook, and I'm tagging Scott Zolber, and I'm sitting there next to this empty seat. This empty, expensive seat. And it's like as the Eagles are driving down the field and Jay Ajay is scoring his second touchdown, I'm like turning to that seat the high five and it's like you don't even realize you look like a mental case because there's nobody there. And it was heartbreaking. It was an amazing experience. It was something I had to do. It was something I'm grateful to Scott Grable, who I look up to a lot, for making me do. But there was a hollow feeling that Silver was not there. And, um, all I can say about Zolber, Scott EZ, if you're watching this from up there, hope you're hanging with Max and Charlie. And, uh, we miss you, man. The world was a better place with Scott Zolber. And the Eagles have not gone back to the Super Bowl since then. And um, it was really something that will stick with you the rest of your life. You just don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, you know? Talking to friends today, and life is too short, man. You just don't know. Tomorrow is not granite. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Because I'm running to a jail today. And I got a young client in uh, Oakland County. This individual is getting out of jail in a few days. And I felt like hell for this individual to get a short sentence. And I told this individual today, I have another case pending. I promise you, you're never going to be in jail again. I want you to put this time behind you. It's just weird. When we see young people... Especially young people of color getting overly prosecuted or becoming victims of political prosecutions. It just really, it keeps you up at night. It makes me sick. And uh, the job of a prosecutor is to protect the community. The job of a prosecutor is to look at the evidence objectively and to make a charging decision based upon that. And I thank people like Scott Corner. I thank people like Mark Green. 
I think you'll exact Stampion who take that oath seriously. Because even though we're against each other in multiple cases, you guys are true prosecutors and doing what you have to do to protect your community, and I'm fighting like hell for my clients. And I appreciate that. I really do. I think some prosecutors should learn from the example you set. Because when we f*** with someone's life and they're innocent, when we don't care about the truth, we care more about our Google hits. When we get to that point, we really need to look in the mirror. When you watch this, when you talk a little about me as you're drinking your wine and talking in your politically correct manner, I want you to remember one thing. We're in a war. And I'm not going to back down. To the individuals I'm speaking to that have wrongly charged innocent children, you better be ready. I'm not backing down. And that's something that Scott Zolber and I will always have in common. Which brings me to the Innocence Project, which was 2007 at Cooley. My first time I see John Granger out there because John Granger was in 60 plus. So we used to be in the same area together. Ninth floor. My first term in the Innocence Project, um, my mom was dying of ovarian cancer. We were required to do 90 hours in our externship for the term. And I did over 300 hours. I think I set the record for hours in the Innocence Project. And what I used to do, I took it real serious. I used to go in there on Saturday night with my dinner and pull files and work my ass off. What I thought about the Innocence Project was two things. One, I'm not going to be a criminal lawyer. Oops. But two, was there a more important job in the legal profession than being a criminal lawyer? When someone's freedom is in your care? And my roommate in college, in law school I should say, was Joe Andrews. And while I did 300 hours, um, Joe did next to nothing. He wasn't a hard worker. And our direct supervisor was Norman Fell. And let me be clear, Chris Donna McLean um, was a great leader of the Innocence Project. But Fell was my direct supervisor. And it's hard to say anything good about Norman Fell. Norman Fell told me I didn't know what I was doing. The reality was I was making more work for Norman Fell. He gave me a D my first term of crim law. He told me I didn't have what it made, took to get through Cooley. He told me I wasn't good enough to make it through law school or pass the bar exam. And he told me that Joe Andrews was going to be the next big thing. Joe Andrews is superior to me. Now, 
We'll talk about Joey Andrews another time, but Joey Andrews today, I believe, was a community organizer in Virginia who didn't make it as a lawyer. And you know, it's such bullshit. We look at grades, we look at the LSAT and law review and all this stuff. I've said this before, and I said this to a friend today. We graduate from college to take the LSAT. We take the LSAT to get into law school. We get the grades in law school to sit for the bar exam. We pass the bar exam to practice law. We go through these hurdles, right? And the reality is, none of these things have anything to do with each other. Far too many times in life, we confuse intellect with academic ability. It's one thing to understand to a multiple choice question, or to write a good essay. It really is. It's great. Good for you. It's another thing to fight for somebody's life. Many of the people I know who are the stars of law school are not even bench warmers in the real world. And what law school didn't teach you is how you have to give up holidays and weekends for our craft. What law school didn't teach you was passion. I'll admit, my capacity for work is greater than most. It may not be normal. But every day I wake up, the fact that I get to put a suit and tie on and go to court, the fact that I get large paychecks, the fact that I can own a home and have IRAs, all that happy horse shit, the fact that I'm not bartending in Jersey, or worse, I am so appreciative of the field of law. And I just feel like so many of us in this field take that for granted. And what I take from the Innocence Project is this. People like Norman Fell, when they judge people, when a professor judges someone based upon their subjective perception, it can affect people. Someone like Joe Andrews, and there's some bitter aspects of Joe Andrews, I won't get into that right now, but yeah, there's some anger towards Joe. Has to do with a firm we had together, has to do with my tutoring business, has to do with a lot of things I did for Joe. Joe was a great law student, but he is not a great legal mind. And for Norman Fell to dictate who were the haves and have-nots, I don't think Norman Fell ever won a capital case on his own. I don't think Norman Fell is a good person. I don't think he is this great criminal mind. Um, Norman Fell didn't know what it was like walking home in Ducktown in the 90s. He didn't know what it was like having dyslexia and getting through school. He did not know what it was like to be broke and having to support your, your mom. He knew what it was like to be in what was perceived the ivory tower of teaching at Cooley, working six hours a week, and acting like the world owed you something. Norm, let me explain something, bro. Because you dropped the ball on me, okay? If you were a football scout and grading me in the draft, you would be fired. What you missed was you can't gauge heart. You can't gauge passion. All you can do, bro, 
is gauge what the Scantron says in your multiple choice and what you feel is the right essays. That's not Crim Lol, buddy. Crim Lol is when the mother and grandfather of a wrongly charged young man is crying in your office at 2 o'clock in the morning. And you're there to fight. Crim Lol is when there's a dirty prosecutor on the other side who doesn't care about past polygraphs or the truth. When that prosecutor hides evidence and this kid's life is in the balance. The whole point of the Innocence Project was that we had the burden of proving someone's innocence, which goes against everything the Constitution says we're supposed to do. I'm going to give you a newsflash, guys. When they say innocent till proven guilty, that's a f***ing misnomer. You are guilty until proven innocent. That's the burden a good criminal defense lawyer has. Money and Google hits and all that happy horse little criminal groupies, they are all byproducts of this profession. And it means nothing compared to someone's freedom. The reality is this. If we're going to be a criminal defense lawyer, we take on the oath of keeping someone's freedom. We take on the obligation of fighting for the truth. We take it all on. And the difference between the great ones and the lousy ones are the great ones will lose sleep at night. The great ones will take that home. The great ones will miss time with their loved ones to try to give somebody else time with their loved ones. That's what it takes to be a great criminal defense lawyer. So I'm not going to be humble about my ability as a criminal defense lawyer. I am a force to be reckoned with because I care more about my clients than I do about myself. And that's something Norm Fell will never understand. This is not a 9 to 5 job with holidays and weekends off. This is 24-7, 365 days a year. When we are not working, somebody else will be. When we face them, they will beat us. We have to take this serious. We take people's freedoms in our care. We can't always fix it. There is no shame in losing a child. There is shame in not exploring every avenue to protect your client's freedom. Because the minute I do that is the minute I can't look myself in the mirror. I wouldn't like myself at that point. It doesn't matter all the five-star reviews and big checks. If you truly lose your way in this field, you need to get the hell out of this field. If you are a prosecutor, your obligation is not to get a conviction. Your obligation is to seek the truth, to protect the community. If you are a criminal defense lawyer, your obligation is not to win the case. Your obligation is to be diligent and competent and explore every step. Turn over every rock. Get all the evidence. Explore it. Break things down to your client. Give your client the best possible opportunity to get the best possible result. When we don't do that, we should be disbarred. It's that simple. What I learned from Norm Fell at the Innocence Project my first term is 
The difference between the haves and have-nots is nothing more than a mirage. You can't look at somebody based on their LSAT score or their GPA and say, that's the person I want to protect my freedom. Can't do it, man. I got the grades. When dyslexia was figured out, my MBE was amazing. Maybe the highest in the state. Doesn't mean anything. I will take a C student any day of the week. They'll put the needs of their client over themselves than the A student who's more worried about their vacation time. When Norm Fell predicted that I would be a nobody and Joe Andrews would be a somebody, he was looking basically at your GPA. He was looking at your unofficial transcript. You could take your transcripts and wipe your ass with them. It's irrelevant. And that brings us to our last topic, which was a motivator for me. December 30th, 1994. It's weird how life comes full circle, isn't it? I mean, in life, we change roles. Sometimes we start a certain place, and we get somewhere else, and sometimes somebody else is there, and they transition. December 30th, 1994, um, that was, I was at Atlanta Community College. And I was bar porter at Tropicana. Now, for those guys and girls out there who don't know what a bar porter is, a bar porter to a bartender is what a busboy is to a waiter. So as a bar porter, we cut the fruit, we stored the liquor, we got the ice, we put the glasses up, and um, I went from bar porter to bartender. I got promoted after our first year at Tropicana. And you're making very little money as a bar porter. It was my college job initially, for the promotion. And, you know, it was... And this will not be a Donald Trump story, Nance, okay? Okay, I will not tell the Trump story. This is a Tropicana story. So December 30th, 1994, it was the end of first term of college. And people were on break. And there is a New Jersey college mixer at Tropicana. It's a banquet. And I was a banquet bar porter back then. I'm 18. And uh, a lot of kids from Rutgers and Rowan were there. And this was a big deal because the kids that were like 18 and freshmen in college, they'd be able to drink at these events because nobody's really checking IDs, etc. And here I am. I'm 18. Uh, the summer of my senior year of high school, there was a girl I was dating. I guess she was my first real girlfriend. I guess. She went off the Rutgers. I stayed at Atlantic Cape Community College. It's Atlantic Cape Community College today. It was ACC back then, Atlantic Community College. And I went to Atlantic Community College because my first two years I was paying for my own schooling and I was supporting Aunt Mary and Mom. And uh, it was cheap and I got a partial scholarship and I was trying to play travel baseball. It was a time to learn about life. It wasn't a great time. But certainly um, launched things, in a way. And she comes to this party, because she's at Rutgers, and she's a big deal. She's going to be a doctor one day. 
And she didn't have a lot of money. We were both relatively poor kids from Atlantic City. Um, she lived in a better part of AC than I did. She lived towards the Chelsea area, which certainly wasn't wealth, but it was a lot better than Ducktail. I would say in Atlantic City, there was um, Back Maryland, was the most dangerous part, Virginia Avenue Courts, Stanley Home Village, and there was Ducktown. We were like the fourth highest, uh, fourth worst part of Atlantic City, and then Chelsea was much better because you're going towards Ventnor. And back then, Atlantic City was ranked like always in the top ten of most dangerous cities in the country. We were number seven back then. And here I am, getting the ice and bar, I'm bar portering, and she comes into this banquet. Wearing this beautiful gown with her new boyfriend, who had money from Rutgers. And she goes up to my bar. And uh, Carl Welch is the bartender. He's deceased now. That's a story for another time. But I'm Carl's bar porter, right? And here she comes up with her new boyfriend. And they are guests at the banquet. And I am basically a grunt worker at the banquet. And our eyes meet. And Sherry, Sherry, here she is with her boyfriend, laughing, drinking her mimosa. He's drinking his own iced tea. He's a few years older. He's got money. I don't, obviously. And she had this look about her. And she smirked at me. Now, when we broke up, um, it wasn't a horrible breakup. It was a long-distance thing, you know? I'm back home. She's at Rutgers. She's gonna live her life, I'm gonna live my life. We kind of stayed in touch. This was before texting. We used to call each other sometimes, but she felt she made it. And she comes up to me. She's a little drunk at this point. And I'm getting the glasses for Carl. And I gotta tell you, being an 18-year-old bar porter and seeing her there with her new boyfriend, you are a poor kid from Atlantic City. And it was an indicator that she was on her way to big things, and I may never leave this situation. And she whispers in my ear, well, I guess we see who's who now. She was kind of bitter, and when she was drunk, she was not the friendliest person. And I just looked at her, and I'm like, hmm, stay tuned. It was like a moment to flex. And I thought to myself that day, as if I didn't believe this already. Hmm. I'm watching these 18-year-olds. And these, hanging out with these 22-year-olds. Having the time of their life. College is a blast. Mom and dad got money. She's going to basically get hooked up. And I'm cutting fruit. I'm cutting fruit, and in the back of the service bar, I got my books with me, because every break I get, I'm studying. I'm taking 16 credits, I'm working 40 hours a week, I'm playing travel baseball, I'm writing for the school paper, but I'm a nobody, okay? I am not shit back then. And here she is. She's pretty, with her little doctor-to-be, laughing in her gown. And it was humbling. And I thought to myself that day, this is one of those moments in life, you know? One of those make or break moments. 
thought to myself, either I'm going to listen to the crowd, or I'm going to be fuel, fueled by this moment. Be angered by this moment. I'm going to use the motivator, you know? And as she's talking to me, I said to her, hope you enjoy your evening. And I went in the back, and I filled the glasses, and I got the ice for Carl. When I went back to study, like this surge of energy, you know? Because I always believed the educational system was bullshit. I thought it was fascinating how we determined the haves versus the have-nots. But also, that day was like... That was coffee in the face. That was ice being thrown down your back. That was an understanding that you had to control the educational system to get where you need to be. Aunt Mare and Mom are not going to get stuck and die in the f***ing ghetto of Ducktown while people like this are going to sleep their way to money. Stay tuned. Watch me. And while it's hurtful for an 18-year-old kid to see a girl he had feelings for laugh in his face while she's moved on to what she perceives somebody is better, it was a learning experience. And I finished my shift, and at the end of the shift, Steve Hansen, great guy, supervisor, and Steve and Mickey Pelleggi used to do everything they could to work around my school schedule. Always be grateful to those guys. And Steve said to me, we have a call out in Kitchen Service South. Can you bartend in Kitchen Service South, which was just handing stuff to waiters in the middle of the night. We'll pay you overtime and you could do more homework there. And I decided to take that painful experience and make extra money for my family. And I studied my ass off. And it wasn't about being tired at that point. Um, it was a 16 hour shift and I wasn't affected by it at all. I was fueled by anger. The sad part about success is quite often anger is a motivator. I'd like to say that anger or that I'm bigger than anger. I like to believe that. I don't think I am. I don't think any of us really are. I think the toughest situations we go through in life can be used as amazing motivators. Those make or break moments. And seeing her there looking beautiful with her new boyfriend while I am cutting fruit for Carl Rutledge was humbling. It was a slap in the face, but it was also a pretty good wake-up call. Make or break moments. I'll never forget that banquet I worked, and then working Kitchen South that night, and perfecting political science in Kitchen Service South, reading that book over and over again, and finding the trends, and doing it with dyslexia, which was quite a feat, actually, and I'll give myself a pat on the back for that. It wasn't until my second term of law school I learned how to control dyslexia, and I never knew I had dyslexia. I used to just study countless hours to get B's, you know? And seeing words backwards and getting B's was actually a pretty impressive feat. When I start seeing clearly, watch out. But I will tell you, when certain teachers and certain people in the know question my intellect growing up, it's always funny the people that are making the determination of who's going to make it and who's not. Look at their lives. Look at their success rate. Look at what their station is in life. 
sometimes on my podcast and stuff, there's this bitterness that comes out. There's this anger, and it's not for me. It comes off like I'm defending myself, but let me be clear. My mom was a smart and beautiful woman, but she listened to what the ass said, and she lived a sad life. My aunt was a fighter, toughest woman I ever know. But she listened to what the people said. But both of them, despite listening, taught me not to listen. They taught me to fight. They molded me into something which is frustrating at times, but it was an escape. The only way out of Ducktown was to do the playbook Mary Lee Neri taught me. If I would have listened to Linda McDavid, or I would have listened to the crowd, or listened to the Norman Fells of the world, I wouldn't be here right now. And I can't repay Aunt Mary or Mom. They're both gone. We didn't have shit. Would have been easier to live in Ventnor Margate. It would have been nice to not have to worry about getting stabbed or raped on the way home. But those struggles make you. And I always say this. Physical brutality, and I've had my share of that, is not as painful as emotional abuse. And the thing that breaks people is emotional abuse. There's any young people that are going to watch this or young lawyers. When somebody tells you you can't make it, you've got to use that for motivation to stick it up their ass. You can't listen to the crowd. So I promise you this, guys. The crowd is not rooting for you. They're not being objective. When somebody tells you you can't do something or tells you not to go for your dream, it's because they have a shortcoming in life. They are bitter about whatever it is. They may be scared of losing you if it's a relationship. Or they may just be fearful you'll surpass them. I tell young people this in relationships all the time. If somebody truly loves you, they gotta love you more than they love themselves. They have to be rooting for you, even if that means you could lose them. You don't want somebody on your terms. You want somebody on their terms. And I think relationships and such play such a role in people not achieving their dreams. I've seen so many people not get through law school because of problems with a relationship. You have to go for your dream. If you don't, you're going to wake up really frustrated with life. Don't do that to yourself. Okay. Wow. I didn't shut the hell up today, did I? All right. I am Bill Amadeo from McManuson Amadeo, Graven Associates, and of course, Shiawassee 6. Guys, it's Saturday night. I'm done rambling. Have a great weekend. See you soon. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the
the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.